The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 227. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. If you want to support the Brian McClanahan Show, go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few bucks my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. I also have a new thing there. If you want to get a book plate, an autographed book plate, you can purchase those there as well. So if you've got some of my books and you want them autographed, Go on out to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support and purchase one of those book plates. You can also go to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. That is my online learning portal. Sign up there. It's always free to do so. If you sign up, I'll give you a free gift. In fact, it's a free course. So all you got to do is sign up. You get the free course. It's great. And you want to do that. You want to get that free course. It's awesome. But I also have uh, six other classes there for purchase. And if you do sign up and you get the free course, you're going to get a goodie as well about a day after you sign up. So you're going to want to go out there and sign up, get that free course, and pick up one or six of those McClanahan Academy courses. So it's a great way to support the show, and you get something for it, too. You get a lot of great content. I mean, my favorite course, um, well, I don't really have a favorite. I mean, look, you've got you've got the war. You've got Reconstruction. That's 50 lectures on that particular period in American history. You've got a 40-lecture course on the American constitutions. And when I say constitutions, I'm talking about the state constitutions, the U.S. Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, the Confederate Constitution. So you got American constitutionalism, 40 lectures of that. It's great stuff. Um, you've also got a, a short class on secession and one on the Declaration. Great stuff, too, and a class on Hamilton. So a lot of good stuff out there that you want to get through McClanahan Academy. And again, sign up. It's free to do so. You get the free class, and then you get a goodie. So going out to mclanahanacademy.com and enroll. Uh, you can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. If you give me an email address, I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook, by the way. So you get my you get on my email list, but it's not excessive. Um, so go out and do that. Also, you've got on that page a button that says shop at the top of the page. Click on that. It takes you out to uh, redbubble.com. You get all my Brian McClanahan apparel and logo and all kinds of cool stuff. So go out and do that, too. It's a great way to support the show. And you can always go to learntruehistory.com, learn, T-R-U-E, history.com. Again, great website. Tom Woods, Kevin Goodson, Brad, Ber- Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, myself. Economics, philosophy, history, great courses. And uh, it's a great way to support the show, too. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. So learntruehistory.com. All right. All that said, let's talk about the topic for the day, which is parties. And this is, again, a listener-generated episode. I love these episodes because... People want to hear this stuff. They say, hey, I want to get your thoughts on this particular issue. So they'll shoot me a link and uh, I get to read some interesting stuff I may not have found myself. Sometimes I've already read the articles, but a lot of times I haven't because um, we've got a really uh, eclectic group of listeners to this podcast. A lot of people that are uh, in- involved in intellectual pursuits, maybe they're a professor, a lawyer, a doctor, and other people that are, uh, you know, homeschoolers or or uh, they're, they're uh uh, blue collar people. Um, you know, I've had all kinds of different people. Truck drivers listen to this show, so a lot of different people listen to this show, and they bring different perspectives to things. And I think that's wonderful. And maybe they're interested in something that I hadn't heard of before, and they they send me something, send me a question, 
and I get to address those or send me a link that I get to talk about. Well, this particular link um, is from theamericaninterest.com, and uh, it's entitled The End of the New Deal Era and the Coming Realignment, and it's written by uh, Frank DiStefano. And uh, Frank DiStefano has actually written a book, I don't know when it comes out, on this very same topic, the next realignment. Oh, May May 2019, Prometheus Books. Um, but he's going to write. He's written a book on this particular topic, and I find it interesting uh, because we are talking about political parties here and what's going to happen to America. And he goes through an entire history of American political parties. He says there's been five periods of American political parties. Um, and so he he goes through those things in detail. Now I have some issues with his history, but this is interesting because. Um, where do American political parties fit today is the question he's really asking. And is there a realignment coming, and how does that realignment work? And more importantly, in the broader picture, I think he misses something in this particular piece. He misses something very important. Now, he does make a pretty profound statement about political parties that I think is important. But what he misses more than anything is the influence of nationalism on all of this and how really what's at stake here, it's still the same old debate. Do we want a national plan or not? It's always been that way. Always. It's always been that way. Um, now, of course, you can say that there was a consensus at times. Everyone became a nationalist, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, in fact, I think what happened... And this really gets into Reconstruction and Recreation. I, I cover this quite substantially in that particular class. Nationalism took over, and so that became the dominant strain for some. But I think there's always been this latent and at times uh, forward, you know, as part of the, as the four, um, a, a belief that nationalism is not the way. And he does mention this in the piece. So I'm going to go through some of this because it's, it's very interesting. Um, he basically summarizes the American, the five American party systems thus. He says, quote, For as long as all of us can remember, American politics had always meant the same war between Republicans and Democrats. The Democrats were the party of New Deal liberalism, as they had been since Franklin Roosevelt. The Republicans were the party of conservatism, just as William F. Buckley Jr. announced it in National Review. When Americans... Uh, voted Republican or Democrat, national policy might slip a little in one direction or the other, but we always knew more or less what we were going to get. Now we don't. Now I put a note here. Is this true? Is this true? Um, is the Republican Party, first of all, conservative, is the Democrat, a par Democrat, are the Democrats the party of New Deal liberalism? I think the question is more or less about the Republicans, not the Democrats. I do agree the Democrats have been this. In fact, the Democrats have decided what they're going to be. The Republicans have never decided this. And in both cases, you have factions. Now, I would say that the Republicans really weren't that much, uh, that, that, they're really that far opposed to the Democrats. I mean, um, this is why you had people like George Wallace and others who would say, you know, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the Democrats and Republicans. This is why you have Donald Trump. This is why you have people that are rebelling against the sameness of the Republicans and Democrats. Now, that's actually part of his thesis in saying, hey, wait a second here. We've got a consensus, and now people are starting to bristle at that consensus. It's why you got the left 
looking at, you know, you have the AOC group in the left, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez people and Elizabeth Warren and, and uh, the social justice Democrats. They're starting to, to bristle at this old New Deal liberalism Democrats in a way. But I mean, if you look at what's happening now in American politics, the front runner now for the 2020 presidential bid is Joe Biden, who represents this old New Deal liberalism in a lot of ways. That's what he is. And in many ways, that's what Donald Trump is, too. In fact, Donald Trump was able to tap in to the forgotten group of the Democrats, the blue-collar Democrats, during the 2016 campaign, which is why he won the election. He was able to hold on to enough of the conservatives, quote-unquote conservatives, in the Republican Party, and some ways to dupe them. This is true. Um, but he, he was able to hold on to them long. People are just going to say, we don't want, we don't want Hillary Clinton. We don't, Hillary Clinton, um, was the establishment status quo that had been there since essentially George H.W. Bush. But Donald Trump was something a little different because he tapped into that, to that working class angst that's out there. That's really the, the key to Donald Trump. Hey, we want jobs. We want factory jobs. We want farming jobs. We want jobs and we want protection from, uh, from, all, all types of things, whether it's uh, immigration that's going to take our jobs, whether it's overseas corporations that are going to take our jobs, whether it's outsourcing jobs somewhere else that are going to take our jobs. We want a thriving economy. We want jobs. That's, that's New Deal liberalism in some ways. Trump was never promising to tear down any of that. I mean, if you, even if you look at what he talked about with health care, it was, we're going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with something. Those are just repeal. We're not just going to roll back the, this new uh, entitlement program. We're going to replace it with another entitlement program. I mean, so what's the difference? This is why Biden presents such a threat to Donald Trump, because Biden is still able to tap into that old blue-collar group that might go along with Democrats instead of Republicans in the Rust Belt. But I would say there's really not a whole lot of difference because of one particular thing, and that is nationalism. Each of the Republicans and the Democrats are nationalists. Now, that's not necessarily the case at the grassroots level, and he does kind of get into that here. But certainly what we have at the top are two national identities. And which direction are we going to go in? You've got uh, the nationalists on one side saying diversity is strength. On the other side, you're saying make America great again. That's, that's the current national debate. National diversity is our strength. The other side said, no, no, make, make America great again. Um, but it's all about nationalism. They're, they're all nationalists. But what you have underneath all of that is this disgust with national party politics and the elites and nationalism. There's a disgust with it. And that is the real restructuring of American political parties. I think in the future, it's going to be, what can the states do? You're seeing this more and more on both the left and the right. What can the states do? Can we think locally and act locally? Now, on certain issues, I don't know if people are ever going to break away from these things. And he brings that up. There's been a consensus reach since the 1990s. So um, he says America is heading for its next realignment, political realignment. Um, now, he goes through a lot of history here, and I'll pick on some of his history because it's way too general and incorrect in some cases. But he does say this. He says, In reality, American parties are temporary coalitions forged as tools to self-govern our republic at specific moments of crisis. Um, okay, I mean, I, I can see that. They're temporary coalitions. 
But this is not necessarily, well, I'll say this. The Republican Party has been the same, and I've talked about that in this podcast several times. The Republican Party has been the same since its creation in 1854. It has not changed. It has always been the party of Lincoln. It has always been a nationalist party with a national identity, a reformist national identity. Now, some people have been duped into voting Republican because they think it, it represents something else, but it never really has represented anything else. The Democrats have changed. The Democrats have changed a lot. The Republican Party has not changed. What you've seen is the Democrats moving from a party that was, in spirit, Federalist. And when I say Federalist, with it, with not talking about the Federalist Party, but Federalist that the we have a federal republic and that the local was important to a national party. And it has become a group, it's a coalition of people that rally around one particular idea, and that is government has to be the solution. Whatever your issue is, whether it's a social issue, whether it's an economic issue, it has to be have government, the center, be the solution to the problem. So the Democrats have become a coalition, a factional party. This is what James Madison warned against. The Republicans are not necessarily a factional party, but they are a, a party that is based on nationalism and what can a national government do. You go back to the 1850s. They were offering national solutions for the, for the economy. And look, they're the, the old Whigs in that way. And they wanted a national policy when it came to social issues. And then when the war's over, then you have Reconstruction, the same thing. They are pushing nationalism all over the place, right? Whatever, whatever issue it is. And then eventually they're pushing internationalism with the nation as the center. Okay, so Buckley was the same way. We've got to have a national war against communism, for example. So, and we got to have a unified America, unitary American state, a unitary American state, not a United States. Even Richard Nixon saying, we're going to have new federalism. That didn't mean anything. It was the central government handing out the money and dictating how you're going to spend it. It's the, <laughs> it's the unfunded mandate part of, quote unquote, new federalism. So there's no real federalism there. But you see, Americans have always had this federalist streak on the left and the right. And we're looking at it now in some issues on the left. We're also looking at it on some issues on the right. The problem is that these two sides can't get over their own nationalism and saying, well, if I live in Alabama, then people in, in California have to do what I say. If I don't, I mean, this is why when people get upset, oh my gosh, you see what they're doing in California? No, I haven't, and I don't really care. Or do you see what they're doing in Massachusetts? Nah. I really haven't, or if I have, so what? These are people, they can do what they want in Massachusetts. The problem is people thinking, well, heck, that's in my contiguous 48 states, so therefore they can't do what I don't like. That's a, that's a national crusading zeal that's been around. Essentially, the Republican Party you know, created this kind of national crusading zeal, and the Democrats just picked up on it. Now, when we're getting our way at the state level, we're oh, you can't tell me what to do, but as soon as somebody else breaks what you want them to do in some other state, then oh, well, i got to tell them they can't do that. And this has come down, more importantly, to social issues nowadays. We've seen it on a variety of different social issues. So um, this is where I think that he's wrong about most parties. The Republican Party has always been very unified in its message. It's always wanted to be the party of Lincoln. It's always wanted to be the party of Lincoln. This is a long piece 
Um, he does say this, that's why American politics seems so troubled. That's why there's increasing disorder and chaos. And that's because, he says, um, the, new, the parties are falling apart. That's why the political world we've always known seems to be decaying before our eyes. The conservative Republican and liberal Democratic parties we take for granted are merely temporary coalitions built to contest a great debate that's no longer relevant to our lives. They're artifacts from an industrial age world built in the wake of a terrible depression that was followed by a horrific global war. That great debate is over. So the parties built around it are naturally fading. At the same time, new problems have arisen to which those parties have no ready answers because they were never intended to address them. Our parties are dying because one great debate is passing away and another is being born. Now, this is true in some ways, but he's also, again, too general here. Americans are angry because of nationalism. Americans are angry because the center, because of one-size-fits-all central policy planning. Whether it's from the left or the right, I mean, these terms, he says these terms are kind of silly, he gets into that. Whether it's from the left or the right, Americans don't like central planning. They don't like somebody else. In reality, what they really don't like is someone else telling them what to do. That's not what they want. They want to be able to control their own destiny. They want to be able to decide in their own community what type of policy is best for them. Now, we've seen, we can look at California, we can look at California, for example, right? We can say, oh my gosh, look how awful some of the stuff is out there. We don't want that here. That's a good thing, which is why California should be more or less independent. They shouldn't be able to dictate. See, what we don't want is California running the United States. And Californians probably don't want Alabama running the United States. You see, that's why federalism works. That's why we don't need nationalism. We don't need a top-down, one-size-fits-all American polity. So the parties on both ends, Republicans and Democrats, are national parties. That's really the problem. People were talking about this in the 1930s, before the New Deal. But even then, what they were talking about is, hey, look, do we really need this national political structure, or do we need some type of regionalism that, uh, that works with the people in, the, in these areas, New England, the South, the West, the Far West, the Midwest, would a regional government work better? Would real decentralization work better? That's, that's the coming question in the future, in the next 20 years, I think. I mean, because 20 years ago, nobody was really talking about this. But it's in, in the last 20 years, you've seen a lot of change. Because people are waking up and realizing, wait a second here, nationalism is the problem. Now, there's always that, you know, uh, USA, USA, this kind of chant, the Make America Great. I mean, there's always going to be that out there because people still want to hold on to that. We still want to be the biggest and the best and go out and kick everybody's butt. And But the problem with that, and people are starting to realize that, hey, what happens if my guy isn't in power, then USA becomes something I don't like. That's because nationalism is the cancer. It's, we've grown too big. The, the, cancer's got, the, cancer, the cancer has metastasized. We've got cells now that are cancerous. They're spreading all over the place, and that's nationalism. So uh, this is why people are angry at Donald Trump. And, I, and, I've, and I've done a, I did a podcast on this way back. I mean, we're talking hundreds of episodes ago, 100, over 100 episodes ago. Uh, so uh, I did a podcast on this. Um, but Americans are angry because of nationalism. And I, I think that's where this piece is get, getting a few things wrong here. I mean, look, he's right that the parties are problematic. But uh, he gets into some of his history. One of the things that's such a glaring error, he calls secession, succession. I mean, that's awful, right? A succession is, 
is something completely different from secession. So um, that, that was just an awful mistake. So his, his simplistic view of the Federalists and Republicans and Democrats, I mean, like I, I, could, I could pick that apart. Also, his very simplistic view of the Jacksonian period. Uh, he says, most important, Jackson loathed corruption, banks, and national elites. Uh, he did loathe corruption. Um, he did loathe national elites, but he didn't really loathe banking. In fact, David Crockett pointed this out. When Crockett was running against the Jacksonians in Tennessee, he said, wait a second here. Andrew Jackson doesn't hate the bank. Andrew Jackson doesn't like the bank. Jackson was against personal enemies, and the bank was being pushed by a personal enemy, Henry Clay. Otherwise, Jackson would have been necessarily against the bank. Now, Brad Berzer's book on Andrew Jackson, which is pretty good in defense of Andrew Jackson, he does bring up that Jackson was a fairly dedicated Republican, at least in principle, a number of issues, and that that didn't change. One of the things that he was it was interesting about Jackson, it's why, it's why I've written that Jackson screwed up America, and on the, on the other hand, I've also written that Jackson is an American hero. He's both. Jackson as president was downright awful. Jackson as war hero and Jackson in spirit in some ways was very good. But Jackson as president was terrible because Jackson as president became too power hungry. And Jackson as president abused, abused his constitutional authority. But Jackson as the hero of the War of 1812 was great. Um, he also says that um, he wanted to clear more land, which included removing Native Americans. Um, I, I mean, look, the not, not really. I mean, the land was, we're talking about Georgia and some parts of the South, which had already been settled in some ways. Uh, clearing more land, uh, he's talking about the South, Southeastern uh, Five Civilized Tribes. Which didn't even happen until Martin Van Buren's administration, <clears throat> the uh, the removal of those tribes. So I mean, Jackson gets a gets a bad rap for this, um, uh, and and people don't realize that Jackson wasn't necessarily an Indian hater, quote unquote, uh, but he did side with the state of Georgia in trying to remove the tribes. Why? Because I mean, there was gold in, in the mountains of Georgia, and the people of Georgia wanted it. it wasn't because they wanted more land, because they wanted the gold. Now, um, so he gets a little bit of the, of the Jacksonian era wrong. Um, and I think Michael Holt has done a great job on the Whig Party. If you really want to know the Whig Party, you might be able to see over my shoulder over here. I've got a book, and it says, uh, it says well, it's behind one of the statues. The American Whig Party by Michael Holt. It's about 1,000 pages on the Whig Party. You really want to understand the Whig Party, and Holt takes a very interesting position on it. He says the Whig Party, in many ways, is just the Jeffersonian Republicans, the National Republicans. Not much had changed. That's what they were. They were the National Republicans. Uh, this particular piece argues there's something different. Not really. They're the National Republicans. And what happened is the Jacksonians essentially adopted, in some ways, this old Jeffersonian strain of resistance to centralism. He also says um, that the Whig Party fell apart in 1852. That's not true. They didn't really fall apart until 1854. And at that point, he says it's years later that the Republican Party comes around. The Republican Party was formed in 1854. <laughs> so uh, the Republican Party was formed right on the heels of the Whig Party falling apart. And um, it was formed because of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So you had these independent the appeal of independent Democrats. This is people like Salmon Chase and William H. Seward saying we have this we have this crisis now because of the Kansas Nebraska Act. 
And so they're going to form their own party. And in two years, they've got uh, a, a presidential candidate. And they're also taking seats in the House. I mean, it's quick. Republican creation is quick. Uh, now, uh, he says here um, on, on page 7 of this 13-page piece, Then another movement seeking to address the disruption of industrialization took hold of the Republican Party. Another religious revival was underway. This one preached a social gospel that held it was the Christian duty to reform America into God's kingdom. The social gospelers he's talking about here. As the ideas of this revival spread among the middle and professional classes, it made common cause with secular reformers who were eager to launch moral crusades for reform. Together they became a progressive movement that flourished inside a more Protestant, middle-class, and moralistic Republican Party. As I just said, this had never changed. The Republican Party was always this way. It was always this way. Progressivism found a natural home in the Republican Party because the Republican Party was always progressive. You go back to the 1850s. They were always progressive. Uh, and I know it's hard. I mean, people, people don't want to hear that. But that's the truth. Um, staunch, I mean, I've had people email me before, very upset when I bash the Republican Party. If you want to blame the, what ails America today, it's the Republican Party. It's, it's always been that. Because the Republican Party is the party that's behind the nationalist impulse in America and making everything a national issue. And that moralistic reformer crusade that we don't like about the modern SJWs is found in the Republican Party. You don't like that. I mean, blame, blame the Republicans. Um, okay. Moving forward, uh, I want to get into a couple of things here. Um, he says that in the 1960s, the Democrats, uh, one of the things he says that made me laugh is that they, these, these Democrats wanted to end war. Really? The Democrats wanted to end war? I mean, uh, that's, that's funny that the Democrats wanted to end war. I don't think you can even, with a, with a straight face, say that. Um, the, the, those, those hippies that were out there protesting war didn't control the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party has never been anti-war. The biggest wars we've had in America in the 20th century were, were uh, facilitated by Democrat administrations. World War I, World War II, uh, Vietnam, Korea, <laughs> and George W. Bush is an old Wilsonian progressive. I mean, he, he's an old, he, he's, he's a real Republican in that way, but I mean, he's a Wilsonian progressive. So the, the Democrats have been behind war all the time. Democrats don't want to end war. They never have. This is why, you know, Hillary Clinton, I mean, it was refreshing to hear Trump talk about ending NATO and uh, pulling the troops out of the Middle East. Hillary Clinton represented the establishment Democrat status quo, which was, we're going to go to war. We're not ending war. You really want to give somebody a Nobel Prize for peace, it's Trump, at least in some of his actions with things like uh, Korea. Now, we say some of this, and of course, he's he's supporting some thugs in the Middle East, which is a bad idea. But at least in rhetoric, I mean, if we're going to give Obama a Nobel Peace Prize for rhetoric, then Trump should have been given the prize many times over for rhetoric at times. I mean, because he was promising something else, and that was... Uh, pulling back on the American empire. He hasn't followed through, but that's what he promised. And that's why a lot of people said, hey, I'll, I'll listen. This is why Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii is so interesting to people on on uh, the anti-war right and also the libertarians. I mean, now look, Tulsi Gabbard is an ardent nationalist when it comes to social issues. 
But on the war issue, on foreign policy, she's right on board with American traditional positions of uh, no foreign entanglements, no massive imperial wars. I mean, this is where she, she's right on track. And while she's not even considered in the top group, and no, nobody in the Democrats wants to listen to her because she's crazy. Uh, she's crazy. Because, I mean, and this is what the New York Times says. I mean, even though the New York Times essentially says they support these foreign wars and the CIA and other things. I mean, this is, this is what they say. She's crazy because they don't support the Hillary Clinton, uh, Joe Biden, go out and bomb everybody position. Um, he says uh, later on, New Deal liberalism, uh, Republicans have united the same ideological f- factions pushing against what, they, what it solves, big government. Democrats have framed their ideas around the same idea, that we should employ national planning and expertise to serve working people and the least well-off. Republicans have always framed theirs around the idea that Democrat excess threatened liberty and undercut the nation's virtue. I mean, sort of. They've sort of done that. Not 100%. All right. Uh, moving down the line, um, he says uh, later on, we're almost on the end of the piece here. He says, America is facing a realignment whether we want one or not. And he says, look, the problem is we don't want a collapse of a party because the collapse of a party is dangerous. He points to the collapse of the Whigs and that led to the great big war in the 1860s. That realignment was disastrous. Um, but he says that we've had a lot of peaceful realignments too. We've had one, in the, you know, we've had a consensus form in the '90s about the welfare state. Americans generally want the welfare state. Um, we've had a, we had a consensus in the 1890s when Americans wanted. We had a party realignment, but there was somewhat of a consensus. Uh, wasn't violent. Uh, we don't need these violent upheavals. The Democrats just kind of became more lefty because of William Jennings Bryan. He's very complimentary of William Jennings Bryan. Because he thinks William Jennings Bryan changed some things, and it did so in a way that was different. But he said, uh, it took years before a new Republican Party emerged, became a new national party, and then established the next party system. And that's where he was wrong. Um, it, it was a, a national party. I mean, you can say, well, yeah, it took till after the war to become a national party, but it didn't take years. Um he says the real, the real issue here is the debate over the American dream. He says all the problems that loom ahead come back to, in some way to one issue, the perceived decline of the American dream. And so this is an ideological issue, he says. Look, you've got people like uh, the Republicans and Make America Great. They're, they're saying the American dream is gone. And then you have the Democrats who are saying we're, we're not even part of the American dream. They're still the American dream. It's the question of, and I think he's a little bit too simplistic here, and how to achieve that dream. Um, the, the SJWs don't want the American dream through hard work and thrift. And the, what they want is to take it from other people and then say, we have it. You're going to, the American dream is confiscatory. That's the American dream, to take from someone else so you can enrich yourself. Um, that's, that's the SJW position. I think the coming political realignment, is, is, it is sort of about that. I mean, but look. The issue is going to be what power does a central authority have to create the American dream? Or is the American dream lost because America's gotten too big? And I think the coming party realignment is going to be about decentralization um, and what that can do. Now, certainly, we have these national, quote-unquote, national political conversations. But when people finally start waking up and, I think, realizing that nationalism is not the answer or it can't be the answer, that's when we're going to see an American political realignment. For the time, it's not going to happen. Because the, 
The, the SJWs, I mean, look, the far-left faction of the Democrat Party, still believe in Franklin Roosevelt's Second New Deal. I mean, that's what they base us on. The, the, the Democrat talking points come from 1945. Even for the social justice warriors, that's where they come from. 1945. The problem is the Republicans have also catered to that by saying we have a proposition nation. I mean, look, the neoconservative takeover of the Republican Party has led to uh, it's cornered them. It's put them into a box where they can't disagree with these uh, with this far left faction of the Democrats because they have to fundamentally agree that the social de- the social justice warriors are right about the founding of the of the United States. See, they've they put themselves in that corner. But if we have a well, no, that's that's not what the United States was. The United States was a federal republic. That's all it was, and the states could determine all kinds of issues. Then we start looking at America differently. But it's going to take that kind of understanding of America, what the central authority can and cannot do, that's going to lead to a political realignment in America. And I think that's coming um, as more and more people decide on the left and the right, but I mean, it has to really come from the left, that uh, what they want, I mean, this is the this is the, the California independence people. These are the people that are pushing for uh, decriminalization of of drugs and other things. I mean, this is where that's coming from. They have to understand, though, that just when they get their leftist wish, that the right, the right also gets to govern their states the way they choose as well. Until they wake up and realize that, we're going to have this real problem. Nationalism is the cancer, and it has to be cut out. It's the cancer in both parties. The Republican Party will always be nationalist, so it's going to take something else. Um, I don't think the Republican Party is ever going to be the salvation of America, neither the Democrats uh, at this point. So that's my thoughts on this particular piece. I think it's interesting to talk about political realignment. Um, The history is a little bit off, and and his ultimate conclusion, I think, is off. But it's an interesting position, and I think it's a very thoughtful piece, and one that uh, you should should read and digest. Um, Again, the title of the piece, if you want to get it, is, uh, I just picked up a whole bunch of junk here, The End of the New Deal Era and the Coming Realignment. It's written by uh, Frank DiStefano at theamericaninterest.com. Um, so um, you can go out and look that up. But I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.